Our scripture reading this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 to 22. If you are using a Bible provided for you in the pew, it's number, page number 858. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. To give the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He has put to death in the body. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, to whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah, while the ark was being built. And it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand, right, God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. May God help us follow his word. Let's pray. Lord, Chris just said, Lord, help us in understanding your word this morning. And more than that, enable us to put it into practice in our lives. We need your guidance. We need your direction. We need you to empower us to uh, carry out what is here for us to do. We thank you for your word. Challenge us with it. Speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I read about a missionary who was sitting at her second-story window when she was handed a letter from home. When she opened the letter, a crisp new $10 bill fell out on the table. She was so grateful and was basking in the joy of this newfound gift. As she was reading the note that accompanied that $10 bill, she was distracted by a shabbily dressed stranger down below leaning against her building. She couldn't get him off her mind thinking that he might be in worse financial stress than she was. So she slipped the new $10 bill in the envelope on which she quickly penned These words, don't despair, and she threw the envelope out the window. 
The envelope floated down. The stranger saw it. He picked it up. He read it. He looked up, smiled, tipped his hat, and then went on his way. The next day, as she was about to leave her house, a knock came at the door. She opened the door, and there stood this same shabbily dressed man, smiling, and he handed over to her a roll of bills. And she said, what's this for? I don't understand. He replied, that's the 60 bucks you won, lady. Don't despair, paid five to one. (laughs) (laughs) If there were two words... If there were two words that Peter would want to write down and hand it to you, it just might be, don't despair. Is it possible to not despair as we read the headlines in the world? Is it possible to be hopeful when faced with suffering and and trials and, and even opposition? How do we keep from despairing in the times in which we live? Many years ago now, Christian social critic Richard John Newhouse was picked up at the airport by one of the hosts where he would be staying. As the host was driving Richard Newhouse from the airport to the speaking engagement, he persisted in complaining about the disintegration of American society and the disappearance of Christian values from our culture. And this man went on and on and on, giving case after case of all that was wrong in our society. After the tedious drive, Newhouse turned to this man and he said, The times may be bad, but they are the only times we are given. Remember, hope is still a Christian virtue and despair is a mortal sin. Despair can kill us at worst and suck the life out of us at best. What I think Peter does in this section of Scripture is present a case for hope. And on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I doubt I could find a more appropriate topic. The very thing we are instructed to do time and time again in Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is to be a thankful people. Not based on our circumstances, we heard that sung earlier, but instead on the confident awareness that God sees, God knows, and God rewards. And frankly... I listen to Christians talk, and I listen to myself, and I wonder, do we really believe that? Shouldn't we instead be making a case for our hope? I mean, it's safe to say that in our moping and complaining about all that is wrong in the world, it won't provide any opportunities to speak of our Savior, the hope that lies within us. It won't give others a cause at all to ask, what is distinctive about you? As we've been working our way through this very challenging book of the Bible, 1 Peter, it's been very evident as to Peter's call to the church. Make our evangelism believable by how we live. 
Make our evangelism believable by how we live. The watching world, folks, doesn't care really how much we know. Nor are they very impressed with the crossing of all our theological T's and the dotting of all our theological I's. Now, it's not to say that knowing your stuff isn't important. It isn't to suggest suggest at all that we're to be sloppy in our theology. I'm not saying that. I'm simply saying that isn't what is on the minds of the people in this community and in the ones you rub shoulders with every single day. They don't care. They don't. What What is it that will turn their heads? What will it that will spark their interest? Our passage answers that. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. We find our main idea for today. Peter says, verse 15, chapter 3, But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. In other words, let's make a case for our hope. Well, how do we do that? Well, if I were to boil it down, not trying to be simplistic here, but if I were to boil all this down, I'd put it this way. The best way to make a case for our hope is to be hopeful. It's not that complicated. Don't despair. Now, we can approach this passage this morning with suffer in hope as our first point. And then share the hope as our second point. And then strengthen in hope, which we're really going to take up next week, verses 18 through 22. The passage you're going, I wonder what this means. Hey, you have to come, around, come next week. We'll look at it next week. I'm, I'm not doing that. I'm going to 17 today. So for today, we could kind of view this, this passage, uh, and the outline kind of as a sandwich. And I hope this doesn't make you hungry. But the top slice is verses 13 and 14. And then the bottom slice is verses 16 and 17. And the meat in the middle is verse 15. That's how we're looking at it. And so let's look at the first heading, suffer and hope. We get our two slices. The top slice we find in verses 13 and 14, which starts the section off and it begins with a question. As we look at suffer and hope, it is a rhetorical question that is meant to encourage these believers to continue to do what is right. And so look with me at verse 13. You can follow along. I want to tell you what it says literally. Literally, verse 13 should read this way. Is there really anyone who will harm those who are zealots for goodness? That's what it says. It's eager to do good in the NIV is, is to be passionate. It's to be enthusiastic for goodness. Peter is saying that it is quite unusual for people, most people, to mistreat those who are zealous for good. It's hard to harm the one, he says, whose life is marked by generosity, by unselfishness, by kindness, and, and is trying to do good. Are you in love with goodness? Are you in love with goodness? You see, when we put our hope in Christ, it should never result in passivity. I don't know where we get that idea. It's not freedom from good deeds, but freedom in good deeds. 
Do you make a case for your hope by actively doing good deeds? Are you consumed with doing what is good? Have wrong things lost their fascination? Because when we bank our hope in Jesus Christ, others see that in our passion to do good. And most will then find it difficult to persecute you. That's the general principle. Peter doesn't leave us there, though. He goes on in verse 14 to say, but even if, even if, contrary to what is expected, he's saying, even if you should suffer for what is right, you are what? Blessed. Which is to say, delight in feeling privileged to suffer for Jesus. Suffer in hope. So often we get so lost and what we're going through, that we're not able to see the good in it. We're not able to be in the right mind to display hope and be ready to give an answer to anyone because we're consumed with the problem. We're consumed with the circumstance. I mean, going, oh, I can't stand life right now. And you wonder why no one's asking. We need to get a grip on perspective. There was a group of, of pioneers on the Oregon Trail who, who suffered for weeks from scarcity of water and grass for their animals. Most of the wa- their wagons had, had broken down, causing endless delays in the stifling heat. A feeling of fretfulness, despair, and, and futility prevailed. One night, the leaders called a meeting to air complaints. They called it a gripe session. And when they gathered around the campfire, one man stood up and he said, well, before we begin our gripe session, don't you think we should at least first thank God that he's brought us this far with no loss of life, with no serious trouble from the Indians, and that we have enough strength left to finish our journey? Shouldn't we just start there first? And the other settlers agreed. So they first offered thanks to God. After the prayer, instead of hearing gripes, there was stone silence around the campfire. No one had any grievances they felt were important enough to voice. They suddenly realized if they couldn't be satisfied with what they'd received, they could at least be thankful for what they'd escaped. I wonder, the next time you're about to gripe, Try thanking God first. (laughs) See what happens. You just might find that what you had to gripe about wasn't even that important. Grievances put in their proper place teach us how to suffer in hope rather than shake in fear. And Peter goes on at the end of verse 14 to tell us, he says, do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. And the phrase there, don't be frightened, is the idea of emotional turmoil. It's to be shaken up, disturbed, and troubled. As followers of Christ, it is out of place to be fearful and frightened when opposition or suffering or trial strikes. Now, I find these words, do not fear, quite interesting. Remember who's writing this. 
I mean, yes, God breathed these words that we have exactly what he wanted recorded for us in Scripture, yet he used the personality and life experiences and backgrounds of the writers of Scripture. Folks, this is Peter writing these words, do not fear. And I can only wonder that as Peter's writing these words out, that he had this flashback to a very painful time in his life. A flashback to the scene in the courtyard during Jesus' trial, remember? The servant girl asked Peter, you also were, were with that Nazarene Jesus? In fear, Peter replied, I don't know what you're talking about. She pressed again. Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Peter replied, I don't know this man you're talking about. Peter crumbled under fear. Doesn't fear characterize so many people today? We even have names given to the fears that are present in our society. <laughs> I'll just give you a sample. Pelodophobia is a fear of baldness or fear of bald people. I'm not making it up. Aerophobia is fear of drafts. Odontophobia, fear of teeth. Thalassophobia is fear of being seated. I can't get my mind around that one. Graphophobia is fear of writing in public. Levophobia is fear of objects on the left side of the body. Dextrophobia is fear of objects on the right side of the body. And there's the fear of the color purple. This fear of hairy people. This fear of the northern lights. This fear of obscure meetings. This fear of standing and walking. And of course, there's phobophobia, which is the fear of being afraid. So you can lock into one of those if you want to find some name for your fear. Fear runs rampant in our society. It's a real deal. Do we fear what others fear? Do we fear what others fear? Or do we suffer in hope showing a quiet confidence that God is in control? And Peter can certainly identify with the fear that goes with us every single day as we live our days as followers of Christ. He failed in the very thing he's asking these believers to do. But this is exactly what a restored person looks like. Jesus said that Peter would fail, but that he would turn back and he would strengthen his brothers. A failure, folks, doesn't disqualify you from God's work. Failure is not the end of your story. It is the very thing God can use in your life to speak into the hearts of your brothers and sisters in Christ. Get back up. Use it to strengthen your brothers. We have our own flashbacks as well. That failure, that blown opportunity, that poor testimony, that time when we flew off the handle, that time when we should not have laughed at that vulgar joke. That time when we should not have gone along with the gossip in the break room. Or that time when we just stood there and said nothing. We have flashbacks to that and we regret them. Because it's fear that holds us back from speaking of the Lord. But what do we have to fear, really? 
We know that when our consciences are clear and that our Christian life is consistent, that even if others speak against us, we can rest in the truth that we are at the center of God's will. And that's the best place to be. And that brings us to the bottom slice, verses 16 and 17. He says there, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Why is it better to suffer for doing good than for doing wrong? Well, deserved suffering is hardly a witness to others. If you're going 50 in a school zone and you suffer greatly for that, and it would be best you leave your Christianity out of it. You're not suffering for Jesus. I've been amazed, really, at what believers want to chalk up to suffering for their faith when it's nothing more than stupidity and foolishness on their part. But you see what this is saying, though, verses 16 and 17? Wrongful suffering, patiently endured, is so remarkable that it becomes a powerful tool for evangelism. As we suffer in hope, that leads us to the opportunity for sharing our hope. That's the next point, sharing the hope. It's the meat between the two slices. We pick it up in verse 15. Verse 15 provides us here with four matters related to sharing our hope. These are very critical. These are essential if we're going to share our hope. These four things all in one verse. So what is involved in the sharing of our hope? Four things are mentioned here. Follow along as I read verse 15. But in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Now we need to stop right there. For two of the four things needed in sharing our hope is mentioned that one sentence alone. First of all, if we are to make a case for our hope... It is a matter of the heart. It is a matter of the heart. But in your hearts, set apart, Christ is Lord's. Where? In your hearts. I think of that chorus. I have the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. And everyone shouts, where? And you say, down in my heart. (laughs) Right? The heart in Scripture is the nerve center of our existence. It is the essence of who we are. Paul says it's with the mouth we confess and it's with the heart that we believe, Romans 10, 9. Jesus in John 7 spoke of streams of living water flowing from within us, from our hearts. We cannot make a case for our hope if we're not addressing the matters of the hearts. And as we talk about defending our faith, we so quickly begin to think about getting all our answers down pat, defending doctrine, and and standing up for morality. And so instead of hope spilling out of our lives so freely and naturally, we, we see the sharing of our faith as some duty. It's a matter of the heart. I ask, how's your heart doing? Don't you think that the unbelieving world can identify a heart that is in love with Jesus? I do. So Peter calls us to set apart Christ. Set him apart in our hearts. It is you we adore. We sang it earlier. Only you. It is to worship Christ, give him the rightful primary place in our lives. 
What powerful words to the early church who were facing all kinds of persecution for their faith, likely not even able to freely and openly gather publicly for worship. And so he says, in your hearts, set them apart. You realize there are people around this world who can't be part of a public worship service. They would love to come to worship, and they can't. Just an aside. Have you ever thought about this before? People who can't worship publicly long to worship publicly. I am ashamed. I am ashamed that I can so easily go through the motions of worship. I can go through the motions of church life and piety. And there are those who would love to have what I have but can't. Shame on me. Do you know what will revolutionize our public worship? Not more or less songs, praise songs, hymns. Do you know what will fill this room with hopeful Christians who can't contain their joy? It is when each one of us takes seriously and are committed to setting apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. That will spill out, brothers and sisters. We don't have to work anything up. It would spill out. It would revolutionize our worship and our lives because all of it is worship. It's a matter of the heart. Secondly, it's also a matter of obedience. A matter of obedience. The call is for the heart to set apart Christ as what? Lord. Master. Ruler. In charge. In the driver's seat. Not the co-pilot, but flying the plane. The one who calls the shots. The one who trumps every human agenda. Has the first say and the final say. Is the one who's to be the authority in your life. Lord. When Jesus says it, it does settle it. And we shouldn't then go and ask for a second opinion. Lord. Is he Lord of your heart? Is he Lord of our decisions? Is he Lord of our marriage? Is he Lord of your checkbook? Is he Lord of all your activities? Is he Lord Sunday through Saturday? Do you still have to work on that one? You see, most don't want to dump Christ completely. They just kind of want to keep him at a comfortable distance. It says, Wilbur Reese puts it, and I've quoted this before. He says, I would like $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal and a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. See, $3 worth of God won't make us nervous. $3 worth of Christ will keep our guilt level just below the threshold of pain. $3 worth of Christ won't demand as much, but you know what else? It won't make a case for our hope. It's not living life on purpose, nor will it pique anyone's curiosity about what's different in our lives. How's your hearts? Secondly, are you doing what Jesus says? Are you being obedient? Is he Lord? 
It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of obedience. We then move to the rest of the verse. Can't move there until we settle these two things first. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that is within you. The third thing needed if we're to share the hope, you see it there? It presupposes that we are living in such a way that people are asking. That's the third thing. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of obedience. And it presupposes that we are living in such a way that people are asking. And if people aren't asking for you to give the reason for the hope, it just might be because they're not seeing hope in you and in me. The best way to make a case for our hope is to get hopeful. And when it says here, give an answer or give a defense, it's using courtroom terminology. It's to be put on a stand and reply to formal legal charges given. Peter's telling his readers that they need to be prepared to give a reply to accusations leveled against them. But Peter then also broadens it to include all believers. For he then says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. He's not just speaking to a formal defense given in a court of law, but that there's to be a readiness on our part always. It is a readiness to share our hope to everyone. The word ask, by the way, suggests everyday normal conversation. That's what it means. It goes beyond formal charges to informal questioning from those who are watching and they're noticing hope. They're seeing that you're dancing through life. They're seeing that you have joy in your hearts. They're seeing that no matter what's going on, you're not in despair because you have a quiet confidence in the Lord. There was this Peanuts cartoon. You know, I'd lose half of my illustrations. Charles Schultz was never born. But tucked away in my memory is this Peanuts cartoon in which Lucy asked Charlie Brown, did you ever know anyone who was really happy? Before she can finish the sentence, Snoopy comes dancing into the next frame, as only Snoopy can. He dances his merry way through the, all, across all the frames, and, and while Lucy and Charlie are just watching amazement. And then the last frame, Lucy finishes her sentence. Did you ever know anyone who was really happy and was still in their right mind? <laughs> Folks, I hope someone accuses us of not being in our right minds. Has it been a while? Not because of foolish things. Because you're dancing merrily through life. Because you're dancing with joy in your heart. Because there's hope in your heart. And they're going, what is with you? Where do you get this from? I want some of that. Are they asking? It presupposes. It presupposes we're living in such a way that people are asking. Fourthly, it means we are to be on the alert. We're to be on the alert. It's to be on the alert to the promptings of the Spirit. That when those opportunities present themselves, we are ready. And we walk in it, how? With aggressiveness, right? We walk in it with forcefulness. We walk in it with overpower them, with the knowledge of Scripture that we have, right? No, it says we're to do it, how? With gentleness and respect. Just look at how Jesus interacted with people. How did Jesus talk with people he was desiring to win over with the truth? He asked the Samaritan woman for a drink of water. He asked to be the guest at, at Zacchaeus' house. He didn't bully them. He got into their life and spoke to them on 
where they lived life. He drew them in. He was alert to the opportunities. We need to be alert to the opportunities. Are we? Are we alert to the opportunities? Are we following the promptings of the Spirit? Helen Rosevere was a missionary to the Congo. She's a, a, a very qualified medical doctor. It was very bright. Well, she tells the story of standing in the supermarket checkout line as she was back in the States. And as she's standing in the supermarket checkout line, she sees a girl standing there with a big bag of groceries and a couple of children, and she's just stressed out. She was in despair. And in Helen's heart, the Lord said to her, Say to this girl, Young lady, do you know that Jesus loves you? Now, Helen Rosevere had done her thing for God over in the Congo, and she was just trying to go about her business of her day. And so the idea of her stepping forward in the supermarket line and saying out of the blue to someone you've never met, young lady, do you know that Jesus loves you, was an absolute anathema to her, and she fought the battle within The girl got closer to the checkout, and she knew she could do no other, so she stood forward, and she said, Excuse me, ma'am, do you know that Jesus loves you? The girl turned around and broke instantaneously into tears. Helen helped her out with her groceries. She walked her out to the car, and they went, and they met for coffee, where Helen could share of her hope in Jesus Christ. Loved ones, they are out there every single day. Are they not? They are. Every day, they pass me by. I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. People need the Lord. Do we see it in their eyes? Do we see their hopelessness? Let me turn it around. Do others see our hope? Are you losing hope, loved ones? As people pass us by, what do they see in us? Do you make a good case for hope? Don't despair. Live in hope. I leave you with this question. Are you actively involved in sharing your faith? Am I, are we actively involved in sharing our faith? We have all the manuals on witnessing. We have all the books, and we have the classes, and we have the the, the box of nice cliches. But are we witnessing? Are you actively involved? Are you intentional in sharing your faith? If not, we have to ask, why not? If so, I encourage you to continue in hope. Because as you do, others will ask. They will ask. Let's pray. Lord, as we go from here, May I see it in their eyes. Not to be obnoxious. Not to push the issue. But maybe a gentle answer. Maybe a gentle word of encouragement. Maybe just some small way in which we help someone else out. And then they turn and say, what's with you? I want to know more about this. God, Help me, help us to always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks us. The reason for the hope that lives within us, may we give a good case for hope in a hopeless culture we live in. Use us.
to touch a life this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.